where did I come from? Why am I here? Who has come before me? Who are my forefathers? What are my roots? Maybe if I was Dutch, right? I was thinking about this. Maybe if I, I was Dutch, it might explain my love of Amstel Light. Everybody tells me, you drink that swill? And I, I, I'm always going, well, maybe I'm Dutch. Or maybe if I found out about some generational curse, it might explain why I root for the sports teams that I do, that something was put upon me to cause all of this pain. There's, there's something deep inside each of us that wants to understand who we are, why we're here, why we do what we do. That's the heart of what I'm trying to get at in this series for me and for you. There's this old adage, almost everybody in the room would see that it's true. Those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. So in this study of us and the one who made us, that's where, this is where we are. The reason that most of us in our lives have had this feeling at some point along the way, like things aren't the way they should be, it's because things aren't the way they were supposed to be. Genesis, we're studying Genesis, book of our shared origins. It makes it quite clear really quickly that we were made for something much more. We were supposed to be these image bearers of, of God. We were supposed to live with purpose and dignity and eternally and, and, and display God to one another, to the creation. In this state, the Bible refers to as shalom, this harmonious relationship to God, to others, with self. Imagine living in shalom with yourself, at peace internally, and in creation too. And Moses looked at that, that, that symbiotic relationship of all things when it was working right, and he said, man, that is, that is so good. But into this shalom came what has been an eternal enemy for all of us, and he asks a question and he plants a doubt, and, and you see what undergirded all of this good, all of this shalom, was this concept that God was allowed to be God, that man trusted and believed, man had this faith that God was good, in fact, that God was better. We live in a state of childlike dependence on him. Faith that, that he was for us, uh, he understood us, that he was wiser, kinder, gentler, more good and loving than we were, and because of that, he had not just the right but, but that he should decide what's good, what's evil, what's right, what's wrong, that his ways really were higher and better, and, and, and when we pursued him, we would live well. And when we bought that truth, it promoted and we lived in shalom. But this enemy comes on the scene and he causes us to question and, and ultimately to make a choice that love demanded God allow to make this choice where we said, you know, we, we're going to take the mantle of God. We are going to, from this point forward, determine for ourselves what's right and wrong and good and evil, in a sense, to put faith, not in God, but in ourselves, our ways over his ways. We saw the result over the last couple of weeks. Immediately we begin hiding from one another. There's shame and blame. There's an unwinding of shalom all over the place. Last week we saw how this brokenness, it passed from the first generation with Adam and Eve to the second with Cain and Abel and how, how this issue of choosing for ourselves to be like God, to define for ourselves good and evil, how once Shalom was broken, it wasn't just an external enemy anymore. It's not the devil that makes you do it anymore. That something within our very nature changed, our genetic code, if you will, changed, and now the enemy is, yes, out there, but he's also in here. If you remember, 
Adam and Eve were tricked into trying to be like God. Nobody had to convince Cain to compare or, or be jealous or angry or vengeful. No one needed to trick him into rage and murder because it was in him and it's in us. Something happened in this fall and it turns our hearts from God, from one another and the creation and turns our hearts inwards towards ourselves. Here's the deal. If you want to understand the problem, here's the problem at its simplest core. If I want to be God and decide what is good and evil and right and wrong, and you want to be God, I see this at home with my wife all the time, and you want to be God and decide what is good and evil and right and wrong, well, it is only a short amount of time until there's going to be a problem. Because I'm right and you're wrong, right? And so last week, I can't get this image out of my mind. I was sharing it with, with a lot of people this week. This, we're left with this haunting image of Adam and Eve and Abel. All that could have been gone and all that was now just represented here, the pain, the heartache. So I told you last week, Genesis is nothing more than a constant recounting of, of the same issues that we struggle with. Sonny and Cher said, the beat goes on, the beat goes on. And that's what just keeps happening. I, I, I want to share some of these crazy stories with you. The next story that you run into, there's some genealogies there, but the next story you run into is about a man named Lamech who is related to Cain. And here's what the scripture says. It just starts in the middle of this story. It just goes, Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. And so folks, understand the story, enter the story. You have moved, we have moved together from the garden where God looked at Adam and said, you know, it's not good for him to be alone. So he creates Eve to be what the Bible says is a helper for him. Now, men have abused this terminology for centuries, right? But helper in Hebrew is the word azer, E-Z-E-R. You see it in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Where does my azer come from? Psalm 89, God said, I have bestowed strength, a zare, on a warrior. To, to give more depth to this phrase, remember when Adam says about the woman, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh? One writer I read this week said bone was a way of talking about strength, flesh was a way about talking about weakness, and he was essentially saying, where I'm weak, she's strong, and where she's weak, I'm strong. And so you have Eve, she's this corresponding strength for Adam. They fit together. They, they fill each other in. They cover for each other. They're better together than apart. They are two that become one. They live naked, unashamed, in trust, love, and shalom before God and one another. And then Lamech comes along. And you have the first example of polygamy. See, people try to cite the Bible all the time. Right? Oh, oh, the scriptures say you should, you know, you'll hear people go, well, the scriptures seem to have no problem with men with all these wives. Yes, it has a huge problem. It's recounting the historical fall. It's not saying that this is something good. So Lamech, you have this example of polygamy. It's not God's design. It's anti-shalom. And Ada and Zillah's names, they don't no longer translate as strength. But Ada means adornment, or just a mere ornament, and Zilla means shadow. Now, is anybody aware of a culture that could exist where maybe women have been taken advantage of over the centuries? Maybe women have been treated as adornment, or shadows, or possessions of men? Anybody hear anything like this recently? 
origins. In fact, Lamech then goes on to say this. He goes, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. This is the escalation of societal violence. It's becoming so intense that now Lamech is bragging. Things are, if you thought things were bad with that picture with Cain and Abel, now they're 11 times worse. Things are quickly spiraling out of control until God has enough. And he starts over. It was about 1,100 years of, of unwinding, according to the scriptures, from the garden until God draws this conclusion. Listen to the words of, of Moses here as he writes this. He says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined, everything that they thought or imagined, was consistently and totally evil. And so the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on earth. It broke his heart. It broke his heart. I have a friend, it's a mother, and she has two sons. And the two sons were very different sons. And um, a couple years ago, they got in an argument, and the argument turned violent, very violent. Police were called, words were spoken. To this day, they can't have any holidays together. They can't, they can't even be in the same room. Cousins don't know cousins. It's a bad situation, and I look at, at this woman, and, and every, every holiday it rolls around, and she just wants her kids to live in harmony and peace, and it breaks her heart, and I, I can't help but think about the Lord looking at all that is unwinding in this earth, all that he wanted for his sons and daughters, and it gets to the point where there is just constant evil and brokenness and pain and depravity, and it breaks his heart. But amongst the decay, the scripture says this, but Noah found favor with the Lord, Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at this time. Anybody remember what Adam used to do with God in the garden? Still walk with him in the garden, right? And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah, somehow amidst all of this chaos, he finds this peace of shalom again, this peace with God like Adam. He begins, see, this is what God's desire is, to be with his people, to walk with his people. And, and Noah begins to walk with God. You know, it's kind of interesting what we've done with this story of Noah, right? I mean, I remember I wrote you this week, one of my first play toys was a, 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 a Noah play kit. You know, you see, I mean, look at sweet Noah. How cute is that, right? We just love the story so much that, you know, if you, if you uh, had a baby, you know, it's a big decision what the nursery is going to look like. And I've seen many nurseries that look something like this, right? This beautiful, do we have the picture of the nursery? Oh, there, look at how beautiful that is. How sweet and angelic, right? But here's the truth. Does any, has anybody actually ever read this story? Like, really, this is so embarrassing sometimes to, when you're a Christian and you're like, we, we do weird things. This, this is probably one of the most barbaric, troubling stories in all of the Bible. Jesus with the lamb, I get crochet it, right? Jesus, let the children come to me. That should be on a coffee mug. But Noah, has anybody read this? Let me, let me just jump in. Here's the story. It says, 
Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. He observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. And so God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures for they've filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along the whole earth. Sleep tight, kids. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Right? This is just beginning, by the way. Okay, just beginning. Now, you know the story. I'm not going to go through the whole story. I know you know at least part of it. But here's what I want you to consider. In the ancient world, flood stories, this is so fascinating, and I think speaks to the veracity of the historical event here. In the ancient world, flood stories are everywhere, in every culture, on every continent. Some of them, in their history, uh, almost all of them, have this story of a worldwide flood, right? The Sumerians told flood stories. The Africans told flood stories. The Babylonians told flood stories. Stories about, stories about water and its destructive power wiping out towns, cities, civilizations. They're common in the ancient world. And so this story in Genesis to the people it was written to, as they discussed it around the campfire, it would not have been all of that stunning. Everybody had a flood story. Here's what's interesting. In those flood stories, all the water came to destroy humanity, and it was believed to be, you can go home and look this up, Google, Google flood stories. Every flood story that the world has told is about God's divine retribution, right straight from Wikipedia. I know I'm not supposed to use that as a source my kids told me, but I'll give it to you. Wikipedia will tell you, flood stories, divine retribution. God is angry, and he is going to get you. But this story, the story of the Bible, our story, this God of Noah, this story is different than every other flood story and narrative out there. It starts not with an angry God that is vengeful, but it starts with a God who has a broken heart over what was happening to his people. And it doesn't end with God getting even. It ends with this divine insistence that this is never going to happen again. And God brings, as you know, a rainbow and he makes this covenant, this oath, this relational bond between two beings with Noah. See, that's not how the other flood stories that are floating around in other religions and other cultures end. In those stories, the gods are angry Everybody dies and God's happy. In our story, God starts unhappy because of what's his heart is broken over what is happening to his people, and it ends in him with in relationship with humanity. He commits to living with people in this new way where life is preserved and respected. He wants to walk again with his people. One writer in comparing flood stories said this, quote, this story is about a new view of God. It is not a God who wants to wipe people out, but a God who wants to live in relationship. So yes, it's a primitive story. Of course it is. It's a really, really old story. It reflects how people saw the world and it explained what was happening around them. But to dismiss this story as ancient and primitive is to miss that at the time the story was first told, it was a mind-blowing new conception of a better kinder, more peaceful God whose greatest intention for all humanity was not violence, but peace and love. 
It's primitive, but it's also really, really progressive. It's kind of like a god who names a woman after strength in a culture who keeps trying to call her shadow. Do you see who he is? And so we have for a moment a, a cure to all that's ailing this horrific world. A new start. It's like an arc reboot, right? In some ways, what we would call today a geographical cure. You're aware of geographical cures? Right? In Jersey, we call Florida a geographical cure. You know, when you go to high school and every kid that, you know, winds up in trouble, where's he move? Right? Florida. Have you been? To, once you go up the coast down there, it's a little sketchy in Florida. I'm going to get an email about that, I know. But there's a problem with geographical cures. Anybody that's ever gotten in trouble goes, you know what, if I could just go over there, life will be better. It'll change when I get over there. Do you know what the problem with a geographical cure is? You are. Because guess who's there when you get there? You are. So the scripture says the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat, and there's a problem in the boat. Does anybody know what the problem in the boat is? There's people in the boat. People like you, people like me. And if you remember the story, the enemy does not just lie out there. The enemy at one level lies in here. And while a story of a worldwide flood is ubiquitous, this next part of Noah's story is one that I guarantee you have not read to your kids. This is, I don't even like reading it to myself. It's a very weird story and we need to all put on our grown-up panties to deal with this. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I can never say this right. Japheth. Japheth. Ham, this is the way the scripture says it. Ham was the father of Canaan. There were three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over all the earth. And so here's the reboot. We're starting over. Noah, three sons, their wives. And a little odd detail about Ham being the father of Canaan tucked away here. Now, the story starts to take on some strange undertones. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered inside his tent. Noah went on a bender. Noah had a bad night. Now, there's lots written about Noah getting bombed here and, and how that happened, right? And a lot of times in Christianity, we like to clean up our characters. I don't know why we do that. I think God keeps giving us characters that we should reflect on. And people are like, well, you know, pre the flood, there was no fermentation of grapes, so he didn't know what he was doing. And, you know, maybe, but I don't think that's what this is about. Scripture goes on. It says, so, uh, so Ham, and once again, the father of Canaan, interesting that it keeps telling us this, once again, uh, they want you to know that Ham is the father of Canaan. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and his brother took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. This is a weird story. That you definitely want to remove this scene from the Noah patchwork nursery quilt. This is something that you would pull off 
You know, another rainbow patch. Did you know this is in here? Anybody know this is in here? It's a gross story. Does anybody want to see their father naked, really? I'm 50 years old. Last thing, I'm, I, I still, I have no, you know, I don't even like reading about seeing somebody's father naked. I, I'm just picturing, like, what, what, you know, what happens in the real world. Like, you can picture, like, oh, man, Dad had a bad night last night. And most of us, we'd wake up the next morning and go, nobody's going to say anything about this, right? We're all just going to go on like nothing happened. That's not what happens. The story gets weirder. Stick with me. Noah sobers up and he goes nuts. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will be, he will be to his brothers. That's it. Noah's story now over. That's literally how this story ends. With him waking up from being drunk and naked, and he's pronouncing a generational curse on his grandson, who, by the way, had nothing to do with the whole story. It was Ham that went in there. It wasn't his grandson, Canaan. And so you there you have it, kids. Nighty-night, sleep tight. Tomorrow we're going to read about the Cat in the Hat's Lost Weekend in Vegas. I'll see you then. Right? This is the oddest story. It might also be the most abused story in the history of scriptural narratives. Over the centuries, some very twisted scholars and preachers have used this story to justify almost every unspeakable form of human depravity and oppression you can think of. Have you ever heard of the curse of Ham? Raise your hand if you've heard of the curse of Ham. Not too many of you, but some of you have. When you get home, just Google this, the curse of Ham. There are whole philosophies that have been built on this story, all of them horribly wrong and abusive. A couple things that should have kind of informed people right out of the gate that these were fallacies. Number one, Noah pronounces this curse, not God. This is Noah's curse, not God's curse. Number two, who is the curse actually pronounced on? Canaan, not Ham. But for millennia, people have spoken of this curse of Ham. And they've used it to justify all kinds of horrible things. One thing that grew out of this this is crazy, okay? You're going to see this when you go home, so I'm not making it up. But we have to talk about this stuff because it's happened over the years. One thing that grew out of this curse of Ham, a story kind of grew up around it that said when Noah cursed Canaan, when he cursed Canaan, right on the spot, Ham's skin turned black. And, and he became a black man. And so then all his descendants through Canaan, they now had black skin. And so when Noah said that part of the curse was that he would become the lowest of slaves to his brothers, what God was doing was foretelling that there was going to be a whole race of black people who were destined to serve as slaves to white people. And so, my brothers and sisters, guess what white pastors used to preach about during the dark days of the slave trade, both here and in Europe? They would preach that buying and selling of black people into slavery was biblically justifiable. It was the curse of Ham. From this crazy story, that has nothing to do 
with race. There's no discussion of anybody turning a different color here. In fact, if you think about it, they're using this story to foster a system of prejudice and oppression that is completely antithetical to the concept of shalom. Now, I told you this is an adult story, so it's going to get worse. But, uh, you know, I didn't write it. So I'm going I'm to share with you another so-called curse of ham story that's made the rounds over the centuries. Maybe you've heard this one. No one actually knows, biblical scholars to this day debate, what actually happened in the tent. But there are sexual overtones to what happened in the tent. And so certain conclusions over time have been drawn related to those sexual overtones. Why are there sexual overtones there? Well, it's related to a Hebrew idiom. Remember, the story said that Ham saw his father naked or saw the nakedness of his father. In, in Hebrew, that was an idiom. What's an idiom? An idiom is, is like a group of words. It's established by common usage. It has a meaning not deductible from those of the individual words. Like, for example, right, you might say that immigration right now is a real hot potato. If you do a word study on hot potato, you are never going to understand what I mean because it's a cultural idiom. You with me on that? So what was going on in this story is this concept of seeing Ham saw his father naked or saw the nakedness of his father in idiom, in idiom, in Hebrew, that was an idiom for sexual activity. To see the nakedness of someone was idiomatic for sexual intercourse. You can see this in Leviticus, the book of laws. God lays out for his people all kinds of, remember, guys, this is written to people living in a very different culture than Bendham, New Jersey. Leviticus, the book of laws, comes along and God lays out for his people how they should live. And there's chapters just in there about sexual behavior, okay? Here's what it says in Leviticus 20. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall be subject to punishment. Uncovering nakedness, seeing nakedness, there are parallel together, and this is the word that's used to describe what happened with Ham in the tent, and if you just stop there, okay, if you just stop there and you don't do any more work on, on, on the Hebrew, here's what people have begun, you, you might see where this is going, here's what people have begun to say happened in the tent, that Ham committed some kind of homosexual assault on his father. I'm not making this up, you can go home and read about it. And so when Noah wakes up and realizes what's been done, he curses Canaan. So this curse now provides biblical justification for all of history for heterosexuals to treat homosexuals as permanently cursed people. I know this sounds crazy, but this is the stuff that goes on when people take the scripture and bend it in incorrect ways. If you live long enough, you know how the scripture gets used to not build shalom, but to break shalom. This is not to say, I want you to hear me, this is not to say that the Bible does not speak regarding our sexuality, regarding heterosexuality, and regarding homosexuality. It does. But that is not what this story is likely about. 
And it wasn't to be yielded and swung as a club. What this story is about is not slavery, racial inequalities, or homosexuality. What this story is likely about is the same old thing. How messed up we get when we want to be God. It's most innocent. At its most innocent understanding, in the ancient world, merely seeing one's father naked was an offensive act. The father's position was moral and spiritual head, and, and he was to be held you know, as, as you know, the patriarchal figure. The culture in which this event occurred, they would consider a capital crime for a child to strike his father. And so the sin of Ham, maybe at its most innocent, is that Ham goes out and tells his brother almost in a mocking fashion of what he's seen. And in doing so, he brings shame upon his father and upon the entire family. Some scholars believe that Ham was trying to seize the leadership of the family at this juncture. See, the story of the gospel is what? The story of the gospel is that Jesus covers our shame, covers our sin. In the Garden of Eden, what does God do with Adam and Eve when they're shameful, when, they're, when they themselves have sinned? It is God himself that covers their sin. But here you have Ham not covering the sin of his father, but revealing it. And scholars believe that it, it, it was an attempt to wrestle from his father the role of patriarch in this new world. But there's even a more likely truth here, and it's kind of sordid. It's fueled by the same desire, and it's this, that that idiom for sexual activity actually holds, and it did occur in the tent, but not with Noah. It occurred with Noah's wife. Leviticus 18 says this, uh, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father. See, to uncover the nakedness of your father, it actually meant you don't fool around with his wife. Don't uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness. To uncover a man's nakedness in that culture was to have sexual relations with the woman who belonged to him. And so what, what, what scholars believe might have happened is that Ham... He goes in and Noah has had too much to drink and he takes advantage of the situation and sexually molests his wife, Noah's wife, his own mother. And scholars say this is likely why Canaan gets cursed instead of Ham. Because Canaan, in this view, is the product of that union. Why all of a sudden does Noah say, cursed be Canaan and not Ham? By cursing Canaan, he telegraphs that Canaan wasn't going to be the inheritor of family leadership. Because his birth was illegitimate, and the rest of Ham's attempt to usurp, as was the whole attempt of, to usurp Noah's role. Now, there's plenty of biblical precedent for this. I don't have time to go into it. But, but in the Bible and in ancient times, taking another man's wives and concubines was the way you would solidify your dynasty. You would usurp power and authority. My family now runs through my veins, my loins. Ham, by doing this, is laying claim to leadership of the family. He's going to have his son, Canaan, take over. And Noah says, forget it. No, you're not. And that's why the curse falls to Canaan. And so innocent view, he's shaming his father. Or maybe the more likely, less innocent view, there was a violation of the wife of his father, his own mother. But anyway, you read the story. What is at the heart of it? The same thing. This is the second generation of the reboot. 
The second generation from Adam and Eve, you have Cain. The second generation from Noah, and you're right back to the internal issues of trying to build our own kingdoms. Jealousy, trying to claw, climb over, subject others to our wills, our plans, our desires. I want to be God. I want to seize control. Why would I trust you in your ways? My ways are better. I'll handle it from here. I'll do whatever I have to do to win. I will suppress. I'll take two wives. I'll treat them as possessions. Whatever it is. And when that attitude gets deep in us, the Bible keeps telling us and showing us with these stories how far we're willing to go. There's only one thing that can change this. It's not another flood. Because the problem's not out there, it's in here. You ever wonder why Noah built the ark anyway? A lot of biblical scholars actually think it, it never rained until Noah built the ark. That the, the, the world was actually fed from moisture in the air. So Noah's building this ark and people are looking at him going, what are, you, what are you doing? What would cause a man to take on a project like this? Here's what the scripture says. It says, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. And by his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. It was faith that allows Noah to walk with God. It's faith that permitted him to have shalom with God. It was faith, not his works. It was faith that made him righteous. What changes you and I back into shalom creatures, back into people capable of reflecting the image of God, is faith. It allows you to step off the throne of your own life to trust God and, and his ways and his path. It's faith that allows him to, to define for you again what is right and wrong and good and evil. It's faith that per permits peace and joy and hope. It's faith that we are where we are by God's providential hand. We don't need to use and abuse and subject people to our whims and fancies and cruelties. Now in the ancient world, Cursing was a big deal, especially from your father. I mean, cursing was more than just a word, right? It was about your father's favor. It was about having your father's blessing, your father's validation. To be cursed was devastating. It would stay with you. It would haunt you. People on the streets would talk. They knew it hung over you like a dark cloud. That was Canaan's lot now, which meant that Canaan's sons were cursed too beginning with his oldest son. I have to show you something so cool about God. His oldest son's name was Sidon. And Sidon had a number of sons, so many that Sidon went on to become the father of a nation, a nation that's mentioned again and again and again in the Bible. In Judges 10, uh, the Sidonians conquer and oppress the Israelites. King Solomon marries a number of Sidonian women, and they lead him to worship their goddess, Several generations later, the Israelite king Ahab marries the Sidonian princess Jezebel, who turns out to be, well, Jezebel. The prophet Isaiah, he predicts terrible things for the Sidonians, saying they're going to be silent and ashamed, that they're not going to find any rest because of all the wrong they've done. The prophet Jeremiah talks about the coming day where there'll be no help for Sidon. You see, sin metastasizes. It starts, we talked about it last week, as a little thing, but then it gets us in our lives, our worlds, our history. Sin insulates, sin marginalizes from Lamech with women to 
white preachers promoting slavery. Generations of animosity, right? They built up around the Sidonians. And, and, and Jesus comes on the scene, and, and, and all these stories have a big head of steam on them to the point that when Jesus was here, a good Jewish person wouldn't even dare to go to Sidon or even talk to someone from Sidon. And it went all the way back to this story. And, and here's what we know from our world. When bigotry and hatred have generations to fester and fester, they become really entrenched. So what was a common belief among Jesus' people at the time was this. We're the faithful, we're the chosen, we're the loved ones, we're in. The enemies like Sidonians, they're out. You don't know any churches that do stuff like that, do you? We're on God's side, they're not. But then in the book of Mark, chapter 7, Jesus shows up and he says, Saddle up, boys, guess where we're going? Sidon. And then in Matthew 15, check this out, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman, anybody ever hear of a Canaanite woman? A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And there's a story here about her, her daughter being possessed and she's crying out to Jesus for healing and, and Jesus has a back and forth with her about, you know, she's not Jewish, she's of the Canaanite tribe and, and what the issue would be with him trying to help her. And then the scripture says, the story ends this way, Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Do you see what faith does? Not just a mental ascendance, yes, I believe in Jesus. Real faith. It heals. It breaks down walls. It removes curses. This is a crazy story. This is not a kid's story. I can't wait for you to go home and tell people what you heard about at church today. But at one level or another, this is our story. This is what we do to each other all the time, right? We marginalize we love the Darwinian principles of the strongest survive. People that are different, people that believe differently than we do. This is not a kid's story, but it's our story. What we won't do to get ahead, to win a fight, to get the job, to calm a fear. Ban, come up here. Our desire to be God, to control everything, to always have to win, to always have to be right, to always have to come on top. Do you see? Do you feel it? Does anybody feel this? As I go through this week after week, my goal is that you go home and start going, man, I feel this at work in me. It's at work in me. I don't need anybody to trick me into doing things wrong. It just comes out. The only thing that can chase, change this, this internal issue for us is, is to abide in the living power of Jesus Christ, to allow that to flow. All changes by faith. Going back to the concept of he might, yeah, you know what? He might know more than me. Maybe I should just trust him. Maybe I should just believe. Maybe I should just start to say what he says is right is right, and what he says is wrong is wrong, and what he says is good is good, and what he says is not is not. Do I always have to understand it? No. But I've, here's what I'm starting to believe. I'm 50 years old. I'm starting to think he might know what he's talking about. And when you get there and you really believe it, it starts to change everything. And so, Father, over your people, I pray this morning.
This is a crazy story. And I see my heart in it. It scares me to think of what any of us are capable of. I don't want to be like this. Lord, I know my friends don't want to be like this. But I know it comes out. It comes out. It comes out when I have to always win an argument with my wife. It comes out, Lord, when I've stood over my children and looked down on them because I was bigger and stronger and used that to maybe, maybe push authority where I shouldn't have pushed it. It comes out, Lord, when I figure out ways at work to get around people. Like my old job, it was so competitive. Lord, just trying to get ahead. I could come up with every excuse under the sun. Lord, for your people and for this church and for my soul, I'd ask that you would reconnect us to the living vein of Jesus Christ and that the life of Christ would flow through me. And we'd start being the kind of people that start to go to the Sidons of our world, that start to pursue the Canaanites, the people that maybe we've deemed in our homes and our families and our jobs and our world as unclean, unworthy. That, Lord, maybe as we start to understand ourselves and we understand them, we might start to taste again what shalom is like. I ask it in the great name of Jesus.